Welcome to Just Checking In. I'm Becky Buckman. And I'm Kiana Corliss. Each week, we'll use humor, a little irony, and definitely some self-deprecation to dive into the world of high-tech corporate comms. We'll use our expertise and less-than-serious take on the tech news cycle to bring you the best in the business across comms and media for one-of-a-kind insights and perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Get ready to laugh and maybe even start a tweet thread. This is Just Checking In. You guys, I'm going to tell you what we're not going to talk about today. (laughs) We're not going to talk about Theranos or WeWork in the intro because Becky and I have realized we're maybe a little obsessed with the train wrecks. (laughs) A little, just a little. But there's, there's such good PR comms topics, meaty topics. It's hard not to talk about it. But we're going to refrain because we have an upcoming episode that deals with one of those topics. We're go- we're not going to give it away, right? It's going to be a surprise. We should tease it. Yeah, you can say who it is. So we're going to have Rachel Lerman of the Washington Post, who is amazing, but she also just finished covering the Theranos trial. So programming note, we're actually going to skip next week and then the week after on the 28th, we're going to have Rachel on the show. She's amazing. And she's going to talk about what it was like to actually be in the courtroom and waiting in line and the whole thing. So that's it. That's all we're going to talk about. Now we've got Amanda, who is amazing. Well, one, she's British. (laughs) So I think everything she says just sounds smarter, but actually she says some very smart things. Right. We're talking about Amanda Duckworth, who is a longtime crisis and reputation management counselor, uh, both in-house at a venture capital firm and, and at some big agencies that many of our listeners know about. But I just, I thought in this interview, there's so many smart takeaways, probably chief among them. The thing that stood out the most to me was when she was talking about what is a crisis and what's the difference, the difference between an issue and a crisis. And she's, well, I think the thing to remember is that a lot of times executives think these crises are PR problems, but they are at base business problems. And that could not be more true in so many instances. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, we talk about like, you just have to, sometimes you just have to do the work. Like mm-hmm. and we talk about some, you know, we can put lipstick on a peg and we can, you know, bring down the effect a little bit, but if you don't fix the problem, it's just gonna, it's just gonna fester. And so she talks a lot about that and what it means to actually have a seat at the table. Right. The stuff she talks about is, super fascinating. And she has seen. She's seen a lot. Yeah, she's seen a lot. And she's quite and because some of the her clients in the past have been so incredibly high profile, she is actually at liberty to discuss some situations like involving Airbnb. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I I will just kind of try to tease before we get into the interview is that, you know, we talk a lot about reputation management at, at large companies, you know, the big five tech companies, which are under the microscope in a lot of ways in Washington these days. But Kiana, I think you you prompted her to say, hey, what about crisis advice for emerging technology companies? Because that's, you know, that's where I'm at a VC firm, you're at an emerging tech firm. And I think she had some really targeted advice for people in our position at those firms. And and I think it was instructive for me, at least to hear what she had to say. Oh, yeah. I I mean, I actually walked away with like a couple of things I put on my to-do list. Yes. But I'm super excited. We have one selfless, shameless ask. We do. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Five stars only. Five stars only. That's the new name of this podcast, Five Stars Only. All <laughs> five right. stars only. Well, listen, you guys are in for a treat. Amanda Duckworth has lots of actionable things to say about crisis comms coming up. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. 
So we are really thrilled to have as our guest this week, Amanda Duckworth, who is a veteran communications executive and one of the most revered, I guess we would say, or best known crisis comms professionals in the business. She's now an SVP focusing on corporate reputation at Outcast Communications. And before that was the CMO at Kleiner Perkins. And prior to that, when I first met you, Amanda, I was actually a journalist and you were a partner and head of the San Francisco office at the Brunswick Group. So welcome. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. All right. Well, we have so many questions for you because in this environment, crises abound. Maybe we could just start by having you talk a little generally about your philosophy about crisis comms um, or reputation management, whatever you'd like to call it, kind of what it is, how should companies be approaching it? And even more specifically, how you can tell when something really is a crisis as opposed to just an issue that needs to be handled. You know, I see crisis as one piece of reputation management. I mean, mm-hmm. company, it, something bad's going to happen to every company. It's just, it's an occupational hazard of being in business. So a big piece of what I champion for companies is put money in the bank, do things that protect your reputation. So when you're faced with a crisis, you've got something to pull on that will help you weather the storm. And of course, coming out of a crisis, there's a, a lot of rehabilitation or repair work that needs to be done. So reputation management is really a sort of a holistic wheel in which crisis is sandwiched in the middle. So how do I think about crisis management as a philosophy? I mean, you know, obviously the objective is you're trying to preserve an organization's license to operate and enable them to to keep going with their business and come out of the other end with reputation as intact as possible. It involves a lot of obvious things that many people listening to this who are in the communications business will know. Being prepared, having a good sense of who you're going to communicate and and having the basic underpinnings of your company's narrative well understood and nailed. Monitoring and watching for, for changes in the landscape. There's nothing static about a crisis strategy. You have to shift with how the environment shifts. And you can only do that if you know what's going on and how people are reacting. And obviously, a good crisis management strategy benefits from established relationships. You never want to be sitting across the table from a reporter for the first time when you have to go through something that's a very difficult story. And you want all of that comms infrastructure solidly in place. Can I ask you a a question on your philosophy of crisis? So people always say this to me, and and I don't know actually how I feel about this, but do you believe that all press is good press? So partially, but it's a nuanced answer. Um, So I'll give you an example. Years ago, I worked early in Airbnb's existence on a crisis that they had. And it was, I'm not being melodramatic when I say it was an existential moment. For Airbnb, they were young. They had um, they were only just beginning to get traction, and you guys may remember this. One of the hosts on the platform had a guest who turned out to be a math a math addict and had been cooking up crack in this host's apartment and had just trashed the place. They initially did not respond well, and it turned into a massive social media storm and traditional media storm. They got their arms around it eventually and did the right thing. Um, And we can come back on this and discuss what that was. But to answer your question, this all happened in the July of 2011, in, in August the following month. They had their best month ever 
in terms of bookings. That's amazing. Kiana, the, the answer really is it depends on how you handle the crisis. Yeah. If you do a good job with it, yes, it becomes an opportunity. If you do a bad job with it, no, you'd rather not have the press coverage. I, I do just want to wrap up on the philosophy oh, question. Right. because Yeah, I totally interrupted you, but I was thinking about <laughs> no. that while you were saying it. <laughs> it's completely fine. Um, I think there are a couple of non-obvious things about good crisis management and, and, and my philosophy on that point. At the moment when you're in a very vulnerable situation, most people have this instinct to kind of lean back, not lean forwards. They want to try and figure out what's the least we can do and get away with it. And it's actually a moment in time where you have to be open to doing something fairly bold um, and, and, and big. The other thing I will say is, and, and we've all heard this, we're all in the communications business, where an issue um, is classified as, quote, a PR problem. My experience is a crisis comes from a business problem. There is an issue with the business that has been the catalyst um, mm -hmm. for this particular issue. And um, it helps when management and, and, and leadership teams understand <laughs> PR is a solution, but it's not the, the problem. Um, right. And indeed, very often, a, a biz, an operational issue has to be fixed or that crisis is going to occur again. I want you to say that louder for the people in the back. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a PR problem. Thank you. I'm going to clean you. up your mess, but here's the thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Don't make no. it again. Exactly. Don't make it again. Exactly. What, what about Airbnb? Go back to Airbnb. What did the, I mean, I'm assuming that you're, you're free to talk about it as much as you are, but what happened there and what did they do wrong? And then what did they do right? I think I am free to talk about this. Brian Chesky talks about it a lot and acknowledges it was a real moment of learning for him. I mean, it, was, it really was one of those classic pivot moments um, that was transformational for the company. They under-communicated initially. They did respond to the, the host. They offered to write a small check to repair the damage, but it was just not enough. And, and sort of, it took them a while to get back to her. They weren't as responsive as they needed to be. This matter just didn't get escalated up to the C-suite quickly enough, and nor did they take it seriously enough to begin with. They got religion very quickly because the host was pissed. I mean, as you can imagine, and she took to social media. And so they were forced to kind of come to a religious leader on this issue and, and take it very seriously. And that's precisely what they did. There was a much more accountable reckoning and apology. Um, and it's this, this apology is available publicly. People should look at it because it's really mm -hmm. a great example of an authentic apology where clearly Brian meant it. And I know he meant it because he was very involved in the drafting of it with the Brunswick team. But, and this goes back to the point I made earlier, it wasn't just an apology and an offer to and do repair all of the damage, they introduced a couple of new business features because they recognized they had some shortcomings in, in, in the structure of the business. One was a no questions asked money back guarantee for all hosts. I mean, mm. you had to do that, right? Who was going to put their house or apartment on the Airbnb platform if they thought they were going to be left holding the bag should somebody trash the place? So they introduced right. that and they really beefed up their customer and safety center, more training for the customer call center, two or three really big things that changed the way the business operated. 
So the apology was not like, if I offended you, I'm really sorry. It wasn't like that. It was a really heartfelt apology. I mean, listen, Airbnb's business literally evaporating in front of his eyes. He could see what the consequences were going to be if they didn't get this right. You can find this if you Google Airbnb 2011 crisis and praise indeed, I think it was Fast Company that came out and really applauded the um, publicly the response that Airbnb um, had finally put in. Well, what I'm hearing from you is, and, and you alluded to this earlier pretty strongly, that the role that crisis comms can play, and then there's doing the actual work. I mean, you can message something to death, but unless your your business executives are on board to do the work that needs to actually be done to avert the crisis, you're really just putting lipstick on a pig. Yeah, I agree. And and in this Airbnb case, Brian wasn't interested in putting lipstick on a pig. He knew the problem would occur again if they didn't fix it. And I often think my role, it's certainly, I don't want to under, diminish this in any way. A big chunk of what I'm doing is calm strategy, external, internal, but it's often about, hmm, I think there's an issue here with the way, and you can fill in the blank. Um, and we're often business consultants where we're giving advice on how something should change. You know, we talk about, and I think we might have talked about this with Gina, but having giving comms a seat at the table, and this is where it sort of matters, right? Like, how does your CEO, how do your executives sort of play into this? And it sounds like you actually need a seat at the table when these decisions are being made. Yeah, totally. And indeed, today, I think that is true. Um, You think about the Uh, really senior people in communications at companies holding the chief communications officer title. Very often um, they have marketing under their purview as well as communications. And they are on that executive leadership team and very much um, at the right hand of of the CEO. And you also see this in recruiting criteria for CEOs because increasingly boards understand one of the key functions of a CEO is to be chief messenger, particularly in a crisis. I mean, they have to own it. And right. so having that ability, and as I say, I've, I know, I've talked to enough recruiters to know that this is one of the things that boards are looking at. Can the CEO play this vital communications role? And it's not just for in crisis situations. I mean, you need this on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I mean, it applies to board members too. I feel like there have been a couple prominent crises in big tech, let's say, over the last few years, where I have heard multiple people say if there was someone in that boardroom that understood the comms and messaging implications, the external implications of this decision that we're making now, they would have made a different decision. On that point, Becky, I think that um, we've all heard about how uh, public boards are desperately trying to diversify uh, the composition Mm -hmm. of boards, racial diversity, gender diversity. I'm now hearing that they want more people who bring this sort of crisis and reputation management DNA to the table to help companies uh, preempt issues. That's, yeah, that's super interesting. I have heard you say, Amanda, that the current environment, and I guess we're talking about mostly in tech, um, but it's kind of a perfect storm for crisis and for reputation management issues. Talk a little bit about that. What are the elements of that that you see at play right now? 
Yeah, well, the reason I, I, I mean, it's a perfect storm because I don't think tech has ever been under the microscope more than it is right now, it, yeah, where yes. e- every yes. move is, is scrutinized. And that comes from a number of different issues. We have obviously several very high profile matters um, that have played out over the, the last couple of years that haven't exactly put tech in a good spotlight. One is playing out right now, the Theranos case. Uh, you know, the, the, the fake it till you make it case. I want to talk about that more, by the way. Just continue <laughs> with that. <laughs> I like a good train wreck. <laughs> that, of course, we work. I mean, I could go on and on. There, there's a list where I think people who don't work in Silicon Valley, um, which is the vast majority of the world, would be tempted and, and, and rightly tempted to conclude there's some arrogance and hubris going on out here. We've certainly seen no. it. <laughs> no. Becky doesn't know any about thing about that. No, I do not. <laughs> so that's one thing. I then think you've got all of the issues the social platforms have had with misinformation, that the, the propagation of misinformation, the unwillingness to really deal with it. And then married with that, closely married with that, is the sort of psychological impact of these social media platforms, particularly on teenagers. Mm-hmm. Government is sort of, you have the big five, which, you know, until... 25 years ago was a phrase used to describe a hunting trip in Africa, you know, elephants, (laughs) lions, etc. Now it means something quite different. And the dominance of those big five players. And so all sorts of antitrust issues um, around the almost monopolistic position that they have, how they allegedly stifle competition, engage in unfair business practices. I don't think that's helped. And I think the media... And I've not been critical here. I think the media have played a big role in amplifying all of these factors and trying to hold these guys accountable. So there's just a lot going on that really puts tech companies uh, under the microscope. Sadly, I think some still haven't received that message. And you still Mm. have some pretty high profile cases or or, or matters uh, where things simply feed that, that sense of things. And, you know, better.com might be a great example of that. Oh, geez. Yeah. That's the guy that laid off 900 people on Zoom, right? Yeah. 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 See, this is why people hate Zoom calls. Because <laughs> <laughs> you never know. You get an you invite. Never you know. never know. The only other thing I'll add is I do, you know, the, the other thing that you've got, and of course, this is a, a positive that may have turned negative for tech companies. They have, many of the large tech companies, really tried to create a very open environment for employees and encourage them to speak up and voice opinions. Well, that laid the foundation for um, activism in workforces. And in some cases, I think that has also worked against companies because employees feel very free um, to speak up and be openly critical. So that that's, an, I mean, all of this stuff just, I think, puts these guys in the hot seat. Well, wasn't that the Facebook papers? They were just drawn from internal uh, repositories, I guess, that employees had access to, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And, then, and then the whistleblower, uh, I think people feel mm-hmm. more comfortable uh, in part because of whistleblower protection laws. But I, I think we live in an era where people, employees feel empowered. 
They do. And I think you touched on this a little bit, but Theranos is, is an element of this. We work is absolutely an element of this, but the fake it till you make it culture. And I'm interested from, you know, sort of the comms standpoint, we talked about this a little bit with Elliot Brown, who wrote the cult of we, and sort of as a comms professional, you know, where is the line from between fake it till you make it? You know, I was joking before we were recording the, the podcast that overstatement is my job. Where do you sort of draw the line where spinning and creating buzz. And I think I might be promoting something that's just straight up untrue because that can get fuzzy in Silicon Valley, to be fair. Right. Well, so I'm a big believer in hope, optimism. Um, If if you don't believe in your company and your product, who the hell else is going to? So (laughs) you, you have to start there, but clearly there is a very bright line that you cannot cross when you get into the land of Mm make-believe. That cannot happen. And the job of the communications person is to hold management accountable. And and by the way, if management thinks you're being too conservative, you're not with the program, then you know what? You should leave because it's not worth your reputation to be associated Mm -hmm. with a company that doesn't have basic integrity around facts and truth. I like that. And that's probably why we work went through quite a few comms people. But even Elliot said, you know, he said, when I went over there, these people truly believed they were a tech company. And so I think for a Mm -hmm. while, that belief and hope that you're referring to was there. And then, you know, until it wasn't. The board has a role to play here. You know, I was talking to someone the other day who described boards for private companies as sort of, uh, and board meetings as performance art. Well, (laughs) you know, it... (laughs) It shouldn't be performance art. The board needs to hold the CEO and whoever else from a management team is is on that board, hold them to account and really make sure that what they're communicating internally to employees, customers, what they're communicating to investors really rings true. I mean, I, the we the WeWork situation, and I, I my memory is not good enough right now to remember exactly. They did this brand positioning exercise full of fanfare, and they launched it. And I remember seeing it going, really? I mean, this is just delusional. I mean, it was one of those grandiose statements about, you know, we are literally changing the universe one office at a time. The board would have seen that work. I mean, it would have been significant. Yeah. And, and somebody should have said, Really, do we think we, you know, we're creating off great office spaces for people, but that's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. It's real estate. I want to get back to big tech a little. It's very difficult to um, analyze this from this super high level, but looking at big tech generally and the issues, you know, you mentioned they've got antitrust, they've got issues about the effects their products are having on teenagers, uh, you know, over too much screen time during the pandemic. What do you think overall about? company's response and what can they be doing better? I mean, as we head into the new year, what what advice would you give them? That's a, <laughs> it's a huge question. A, I a ma- massive question. Amanda's going to start charging. I know, I know. I want uh, all the <laughs> big five need to tune in right now and listen to them. Well, I mean, it's obviously different by company and it's different by issue. So, I, I, I mean, I'm about to fall into the trap of giving highly genericized advice that is almost useless. But, um, but, but yeah, um, I bet it. it's still good. I bet it's still good. <laughs> but, you know, I, look, I, I think the, the danger for these big tech companies is 
they've advocated for so long that, that it's better to self-police than to be policed and regulated mm-hmm. uh, from Washington. I think they're in real danger of losing that discussion, that argument. Um, mm-hmm. And so, it, you know, at a very high level, the best piece of adv- advice I could give that w- would be get real serious and do something proactively that's really meaningful or legislation is coming your way. And you may you probably won't like it. Yeah, it's yeah, it's the only thing Republicans and Democrats seem to agree on these days is they want to police these companies more. Yeah. See, we're just bringing everyone together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to unify the world. Well, so from okay, so looking at let's look at like enterprise B two B. So maybe not the Facebooks of the world or the Twitters or the social platforms. But, you know, the other day someone uh, asked me, do we need like a crisis comms firm on retainer? And I'm like, on retainer? No, we don't have a crisis comms thing a month. If we did, that's a whole other problem. If you're at a startup or a growing tech company, you know, how should you be thinking about crisis? Do you need a crisis plan? Should you be, should you definitely have someone sort of ready to go at any point? What's, what's sort of the advice that you give for growing tech companies that might not have the spotlight on them right now, but they're just one crisis away from, from mm-hmm. getting there? Yeah. I mean, just because you're not a consumer-facing organization does not give you a pass on the risk exposure to, to a crisis. And it can a lot of these enterprise uh, companies sit on mountains of data. Um, so you've got data privacy, data protection issues. Um, you also could have a C-suite issue. Um, you, you know, I mean, there are any number, workplace, yeah. environment, uh, culture issue, there are any number of things that could happen. So uh, my advice is, yeah, everyone should have a plan. They really should just on some of the basics. I mean, I, I can't tell you, particularly in early stage companies, the number of times I've been involved where no, that, that no one knows actually who should be at the table making decisions. I mean, you know, it's obvious it's the CEO, but very often, if it's a product issue, well, where's the VP of engineering? No one's thought that they should be at the table. If it's a workplace issue, then obviously HR. You may not have a head of HR. Well, okay, but who's, who's the person deputized for managing that function mm-hmm. within a company? If you don't have a general counsel, uh, in-house general counsel, who's the law firm that's going to uh, de facto play that role? And give you counsel. So it's you need a plan. You need to know who the team is. You need to be have some of the basic comms infrastructure yeah. in place. I also think it's really prudent to do, and we, we, we've done this a few times, a vulnerabilities assessment where you, 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 you're doing some horizon scanning and saying, where could we have an issue? And what does that look like? And are we just giving a little bit of thought and time trying to anticipate where some of your vulnerabilities are? Yeah. You know, many companies are not open to doing this, but I have to tell you that on the few occasions when I've been able to persuade someone to do a training, a mock crisis training, Mm. it really, and these things have to be thought through very carefully so that they are meaningful, realistic um, issues that these companies could deal with. So lots of planning on whoever's uh, putting the preparation in for these exercises. But every time I've done one, a CEO has walked away saying, wow, well, I never knew um, that this might be how it would play out. We don't have 
A and C and D in place. We need to fill those gaps and holes. There's real learning that comes out of it that puts you in a much stronger position when an issue happens. And I think a lot of companies don't do this, right? I no, mean, they'd, yeah. no, they'd, yeah. A lot of companies will have a plan. They won't necessarily do the training. And, and a plan is better yeah. than nothing. Mm-hmm. Do, mm-hmm. You, do you need to keep an agency on, a pay, on the payroll? Well, a big company can afford to do that because the monthly fee to have one on speed dial is not that expensive. Um, an, an emerging growth company shouldn't, couldn't, be spending mm-hmm. that kind of money just in case. But they should have a sense of the landscape and a sense of who they want to put that first call into. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's that's really interesting. I mean, we, you know, we've thought through sort of the plan and the the racy, you know, grid of who would be in charge of what and who would be informed and who would make decisions. But I think it's a, a really interesting idea to to sort of go through the motions with your executive team and it kind of helps you fill in the gaps a little bit better. That's, I think that's fantastic advice. You can see how people are reacting and it might surprise, even the in-house person, it might surprise you. Some things might surprise you and cause you to rethink your staffing or your planning going forward. So, okay. Yeah. I mean, one of the examples of that, again, I'm going to be discreet. This was a business that catered to um, the Hispanic community. And as it played out, it became clear that it would be very beneficial in this particular crisis if there was a deep-rooted relationship with some of the representative organizations of the Hispanic community in Washington, D.C. They didn't have those. And it was the f- they came out of that training, and that was the first thing they deputized their general counsel to do. That's, that's interesting. Like thinking through all those relationships you already need to have. I mean, it's, we all know you can't go to a journalist for the first time with a crisis. You can't go to your influencers either. Right. Totally. And and you need those, those people, by the way, it isn't just about crisis preparedness. Those people should help with business generally. Um, they can be very supportive to help with sales and marketing. Well, that goes back to the, what we said at the beginning is that uh, it's not just a PR problem. You got to do the work. Exactly. I mean, the other thing I think a lot of executives and comms people have been grappling with is political issues suddenly becoming corporate issues. Um, You know, we've seen this with Black Lives Matter, um, other things like that. And I think it's put a lot of companies in a somewhat uncomfortable place and probably rightly caused them to ask some questions and, and make some changes. I mean, is that part of this perfect storm you talked about earlier too, that there's just the risks are greater and companies are expected to be responsive and have positions on more issues than ever in a way? Yeah. I mean, I was in conversation with someone last week who reminded me about, I'll do a plug here for Edelman, although I've no skin in the game, but you know, um, Edelman does this great survey annually called the Trust Barometer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And over the years, you see who people trust and don't trust. And um, there's very low trust in government institutions, um, academic institutions. Interestingly, the most trusted organizations are companies. Hmm. So employees expect their companies to play a role in society. It was very noticeable for me when um, Donald Trump first became president and introduced new immigration uh, rules. And you saw companies en masse at airports protesting and um, including leaders of those those companies. So there's an expectation 
mm-hmm. that companies support society, reflect society. So the DEI discussion um, has become critical and technology companies are more vulnerable to that. That that It's not unique to tech companies. Every company faces a DEI issue, but diversity in the employee base in, in tech companies has a long way to go to even come remotely close to reflecting society. Yeah. Yeah. So it is a, that is a little bit part of the perfect storm. Some progress, I mean, to the point you just made, they have been having those discussions. Black Lives Matter really focused with laser-like precision on, on the subject, but it had preceded that. I mean, the Alan Powell trial was obviously a, a focusing moment in Silicon Valley to look at the yeah. number of women um, in venture capital, the number of women leading companies. I think there's been some acknowledgement of this, and it's progress is being made. It's slow, but progress is being made, and not just on the gender uh, front, but also racial diversity too. The final thing we haven't talked about, and it's only because we've got this new theme of train wrecks on this uh, on this podcast, courtesy of Kiana, because uh, okay. she loves a train wreck. And we've talked about WeWork and we talk about Theranos a lot and things like that, you know, without perhaps divulging uh, particular clients' names. But w- what should you not do in a crisis situation like this? Are there examples or things you can point to that this will just make the train wreck even worse? A CEO is in danger when they only listen to their inner ecosystem. Sometimes that can just be themselves, but even their board. Perspective really matters. Mm -hmm. And you have to be open to listening to outsiders saying, that's not going to work, or that is not a good idea, or no, you cannot wait two months to take this step. Um, and so expert input and expert advice and really listening to it, I think, is, is key. And lots, I, I, not lots, but some people don't. I, you know, my suspicion, and I know nothing, I, don't have, I have no inside scoop on the better.com situation, but it, that feels to me like a classic case of a, of a leader not listening to good advice. You know, I always say to people, uh, advice given is not the same as advice taken. Mm-hmm. And to me, that really feels, I, I, you know, I, I happen to know the former head of comms, very talented individual. It is difficult for me to believe that that person suggested a Zoom call with 900 people right before the holidays was a, and, and to let them know they were losing their jobs was a good idea. I don't think you need to be a comms professional <laughs> to give that advice, to be fair. <laughs> yes, yeah. thinking people would. Uh... And my seven-year-old would have probably yeah, been like, I don't yeah. think you should do that. Bad idea, bad idea. All right, <laughs> yeah. well, Amanda, a ton of food for thought. Um, I think this is great advice. And I, I think I, I may go back and add to my list of 2022 projects coming up with a more robust crisis plan. I, I feel like I should do that. I hope lots of people take your advice. I hope not all people take your advice because I, I do love doing that. So I still think <laughs> like at least we need salacious business books to continue to be written to entertain us over, yeah, the, over exactly. the holidays. Exactly. So hopefully like 90% of yeah. people take well, your exactly. advice. Well, exactly. I guarantee you I'll be it'll be good if it would be uh, actually I think unheard of if 90% of people <laughs> took my advice. I think it'll be a lower percentage. You're not, you're not going to be short of train wrecks. Awesome. Okay, that's all I ask. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Just Checking In. Follow us at at Kiana Corliss and at Rebecca Buckman. Just Checking In is a StudioPod media production. Our producer is Teresa Buchanan, and our show coordinators are Nicole Genova and Alex Karkos. 